Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. It's very easy to look at the March on Rome in October of 1922 as the beginning of Italy's fascist regime, the casual describer of history, and indeed Italian fascist propaganda have done exactly that. It's a big dramatic event, and a temptation is to point a finger at it and go, that. That is when fascism started, and that is when liberal democracy ended. However, it's not quite that simple. There was a fair bit of run-up to the march, and the march by itself was not the definitive end of early 20th century Italian democracy, nor was it the definitive beginning of Italian fascism. But it was important. It was a huge turning point. And today, I want to talk about the context running up to that turning point. At the end of and closely following World War I, Italy was not in good shape. I mean, it was the end of World War I. Nobody in Europe was in good shape. The old order had failed. The system of politics in place up until World War I had led to, well, literally World War I, one of the most catastrophic and awful human events of all time, and Italy had suffered serious losses on Italian soil. Even though Italy was on the winning side, there was all kinds of damage in lives lost, in people disfigured, in towns bombed after the war. And after this gigantic catastrophe, there were plenty of people who wanted to try something different. 19 and 1920, just after World War I, saw a huge surge in the popularity of socialist and communist and anarchist parties in Italy. They were especially popular with poorer people and working class people. And a surge in socialism meant a surge in union membership, workers forming factory councils, electing socialists as mayors and local representatives, and, of course, strikes. Lots and lots of strikes. In 1919, there were 1,663 strikes in Italy. In 1920, there were 1,881. For context, in 1913, the year before World War I, there were fewer than 900. This is a significant increase post-war, and in the face of all this agitation and these demands by workers, by socialists, factory owners responded with lockouts. And a lockout is kind of like the opposite of a strike. That is, when management refuses to allow workers to actually put in hours and get paid, if they sense that there's maybe union organization going on, or fomenting of dissent, or any kind of looming labor dispute. A strike is when the workers stop production to make a point. A lockout is when the management stops production to make a point. And this is happening a lot just after World War I, and there is the worry that Italy is going to have a communist revolution just like Russia did. I mean, that was only a few years ago, and it looks like another European power is going to go red in 1919 and 1920, are now known as the two red years in Italian history. But Italy didn't go red. There was not a communist-style revolution that overtook the Italian peninsula. Instead, that upswing in left-wing political activity, that was squashed. It was squashed by a right-wing reaction. And a whole lot of that right-wing reaction was fomented, articulated, and given shape by a journalist, a writer, and demagogue named Benito Mussolini. Benito Mussolini, he was born in 1883 in Padapio in northeastern Italy, and his parents were fairly liberal. They were left-leaning, albeit still nationalist, and they kind of idealistically named their kid after Benito Juarez. 
You might remember him as the president of Mexico, whom I talked about back in episodes 9 and 10. He was the guy who kicked Maximilian, the French-appointed emperor, out of his country. That guy is whom Benito Mussolini is named after. And Benito Mussolini and Benito Juarez, I can assure you, ended up having very, very different politics. Mussolini started studying politics and philosophy as a young man. And my overall impression of this guy is that he really, really wanted to be viewed as an intellectual, as some kind of political philosopher. He did not, I think, have anything all that useful to say about government, society, or how to weigh large groups of people should interact with each other. After all, when his ideas were put in practice, it did not go well. But the desire for him to be seen as a man of culture and letters and learning is pretty much always there. Probably the most striking example of this is that as a young man, he briefly got a gig teaching French, which he did not speak very well. And despite the brevity of his teaching tenure and the apparently not great job he did of actually getting people to learn a language, he still really liked being called professore. So Mussolini is the type of guy who's all into Plato, he's into Nietzsche, and when he has a chance to actually get people to call him professor, he jumps at it, even though it's a title he didn't really earn. In 1902, he went to Switzerland to avoid military service. He ended up writing for a few left-leaning and socialist newspapers there. Uh, also got involved with union activity up there. At one point, he was giving a speech to a bunch of striking workers in Switzerland. He got arrested, got deported to Italy, and later on, did more of the same when he was back home. Ended up writing for all kinds of socialist publications. He also wrote a romance novel when he was 26. Really, Mussolini was almost a romance novel writer. I debated with myself whether or not I was going to include this, because this has nothing to do with anything we're talking about in the rest of the episode, but this is too good to leave out. It was called The Cardinal's Mistress and was apparently terrible. Uh, this is what Dorothy Parker, of all people, had to say about Mussolini's attempt at a novel. She said, quote, Then I am given a costume romance beginning from the tiny churches hidden within the newly budding verdure of the valleys. The even song of the Ave Maria floated gently forth and died upon the lake. My only wish is that I, too, might float gently forth and die, and I'm not particular whether it's upon the lake or on dry land. I go on to read that a lady whose half-closed eyes understood the sorcery of poisonous passions, and my one longing is to close those eyes all the way for her. And then I get into a mess of characters named Count de Castelnuevo, Don Menizio, and Carl Emmanuel Madruso, Cardinal and Archbishop of Trent, and Secular Prince of de Trentino, and Filberta, and Madonna Claudia, and everything goes black before my eyes. I know that I am never going to understand who is who and what side they are on, and I might just as well as give up the unequal struggle. Unquote. So, at least according to Dorothy Parker, Mussolini terrible novelist. Who knows, maybe had he been a better romance novelist and actually gotten some success out of The Cardinal's Mistress, this whole fascism business might have been avoided, or at least it might have looked really different. We'll never know. So he's a working writer. He's a working journalist. He's not a deep or thoughtful or good novelist, but something that he was, was colorful. His writing style was flamboyant, demonstrative, and totally without subtlety. He might not have been able to craft a moving romantic narrative, but he sure said the type of things that got your attention. 
got your blood boiling, got passed around. For instance, in 1910, back when he was still a leftist, he characterized Rome as being a bastion of decadent liberalism by saying, quote, Rome, the parasitic city of cheap, low-grade hotel keepers, shoeshine boys, prostitutes, priests, and bureaucrats. It's a city without a proletariat worthy of the name and not the center of national policy. Rather, it was a place from which the contagion spread over national political life, unquote. That's exactly the sort of rhetoric that a bit later on would stir up, foment, and form the basis for Italian fascism and its revolutionary nationalist mob mentality. So prior to 1914, Mussolini had been a member of the Socialist Party, albeit a very angry member of the Socialist Party, who apparently sees the capital of his country as a giant contagion. But he'd never really been a good socialist or a doctrinaire socialist. For example, he didn't really believe in egalitarianism. He was a big fan of Nietzsche, or at least he was a big fan of a certain version of reading Nietzsche, where he thought, yeah, having super exceptional ubermenschen, that's great. And that denial of egalitarianism, which is a kind of sort of important tenet of socialism, put him at odds with his colleagues. And in 1914, Italian socialists were split about what to say about World War I. Initially, Mussolini was against it. Then, later on, he said, no, this thing's great. He was for it. At the same time, though, most socialists had turned against the war, and Mussolini was eventually kicked out of the Italian Socialist Party for being a vociferous supporter of World War I. During World War I, Mussolini ended up making an about-face, rejecting socialism, and got more and more into the war as a grand national project. He also looked at socialist internationalism and a desire for socialism to transcend nation and class as something that he wasn't really into anymore. In 1915, just one year after he got kicked out of the Socialist Party, he said, quote, The nation has not disappeared. We used to believe that the concept was totally without substance. Instead, we see the nation arise as a palpitating reality before us. Class cannot destroy the nation. Class reveals itself as a collection of interest. But the nation is a history of sentiments, traditions, language, culture, and race. Class can become an integral part of the nation, but the one cannot eclipse the other, unquote. Shortly after he said that, he served in the Italian army and came home a changed man, a more nationalist man who still believed radically in reshaping society, but for the interests of the state and the nation, as opposed to, say, the dispossessed working proletariat class. Mussolini, again, was an admirer of Plato and Nietzsche, and he apparently read The Republic several times over the course of his life. We can't know his mind, but it's very easy for the lazy historian or the casual observer to see Mussolini picking and choosing what he wants from those two philosophers, especially in this period of his life, and suddenly seeing himself and others like him as the embodiment of Plato's philosopher king or Nietzsche's ubermenschen, all in the service of the nation, of course. And he wasn't alone. Like I said earlier, 1919 and 1920 were known as the two red years in Italy, and at the same time, groups of right-wing nationalists were opposing all the left-wingers that were out there, all the socialist, communist, and anarchist, sometimes with protest, and sometimes more violently. Mussolini may not have been a successful romance novelist, but as a demagogue and a writer, he was very successful in giving voice to Italy's rising radical right. In March of 1919, Mussolini molded a right-wing group in Milan, Fasci Italiani di Combattimento, or the Italian Combat Squad, 
And at the start, it had only 200 members, but it would eventually grow into a national party with Mussolini as its political and intellectual head. And the folks who had joined this party, these fascists, they were often former soldiers, occasionally mid-level officers, and more often than not, they were middle class. Most of the time, they were not working class. Again, the working class was more likely to be socialists, and they were not elites. The elites were more likely to be liberals. These guys who followed Mussolini, they were the frustrated, bitter, right-wing, nationalistic middle, lashing out against both the poor, whom they saw as fomenting disunity, and the rich, whom they saw as decadent and failed. A good example of this is that in 1920, Bologna elected a socialist mayor, and shortly after that election, fascist squads arrived to occupy the town hall, prevent the installation of the new mayor, and beat up any reds, as they called them, that they met. Nine people died in the ensuing urban violence, and many more were injured. Afterward, Mussolini opined that the Socialist Party is a Russian army which has made camp in Italy. So much for national unity. But for him, and for the fascists who were following him, to criticize or try to reform Italy was not just wrong or incorrect, it was foreign, it was un-Italian, and it was therefore illegitimate. Mussolini also said of mainstream socialists that they were, quote, tired of masturbating while awaiting the arrival of the millennium, and are getting around to stretching out on the bed of collaboration with the bourgeoisie. Unquote. There's that colorful language again. So that example that I just gave you, Bologna, that was just one example of a fascist squad showing up in a town and beating up a bunch of socialists, killing people, preventing a socialist mayor from taking office. And this happened again and again and again, using violence killing people, seeing socialist parties and politicians as completely and totally illegitimate, and acting as kind of this mob and self-appointed police force about what is and is not Italian. And they're marching all over the provinces from town to town, attacking opponents, harassing anti-fascists, burning printing presses, and subjugating socialists and other members of the opposition. They acted kind of like an occupying army in many of Italy's provinces, often facing little opposition. After all, their opposition, the socialists and the unionists, they were often poor, they were disorganized, and they were not too well loved by the powers that be as it was, whereas many of the fascists had military experience. And the socialists and the anti-fascists were in no position to mount effective counterattacks. This is not to say that there were not some casualties on the fascist side. In La Spezia, for instance, local forces did fire upon and kill 18 fascists who were invading their town. But for the most part, this informal black-shirted military terror organization doing violence over the countryside was able to operate pretty much as it wished. By the end of October of 1922, before the March on Rome, Approximately 3,000 Italians had been killed in street fights, riots, and political instability as the black shirts marched up and down the peninsula. That's not all, though. Fascists also attacked at the ballot box, though initially not successfully. The elections of 1921 were essentially a three-way tie between the Socialist, the Partio Popular Italiano, which was Catholic, and the fascist, with a few other smaller parties rounding out the parliament. The then-prime minister, Ivano Bonomi, was not able, after that 1921 election, to put together a functional coalition that included the socialists and the Catholics. They did not work well together. 
That government would fall apart and resign in February of 1922, and it showed the inability of the Italian anti-fascists to work together, and it was also a demonstration that the fascists were in fact an electoral force to be reckoned with. And for much of the rest of 1922, the socialists and the Catholics, the other two big political parties, remained gridlocked. Government just wasn't working out wasn't doing anything. And this is while fascist squads are out there in the provinces, asserting brute power. Even in the face of all that, the anti-fascists could not get it together. Mussolini, he was up in Milan spouting nationalistic rhetoric, encouraging all of this violence that's going on in various Italian provinces and towns. And yet, that common enemy was still not enough for the anti-fascists to actually join up and mount an effective opposition. That roving, informal army of blackshirts eventually made its way to the capital. In October of 1922, about 30,000 blackshirts showed up outside Rome, just as they had shown up outside other Italian cities. When they showed up, they demanded the resignation of the current prime minister and the formation of a new government. Mussolini, by the way, was not with them. He was in Milan. Facing a mob of mostly young, uniformed, militarized marchers just outside his capital, King Victor Emmanuel had a choice to make. He could either call out the Italian military to defend Rome, he could sick his forces on all of these guys who he knew were violent and were now at his doorstep, or he could let them into the government. And this is something that historians have speculated about for years after the march on Rome. And I'm afraid we'll never really know what was going on in Victor Emmanuel's head at the time. But one of the things that might have influenced him is the possibility that, if called upon, the Italian military might not have actually been all that loyal. There was the possibility that a lot of them could have defected and sided with the blackshirts. It's also possible that the king wanted to avoid a total bloodbath that could have other different bad consequences. After all, having a conflict between the army and a bunch of guys with guns outside your capital, well, that's basically the start of a civil war. We'll never know why the king made his decision. And it's very easy to look at Victor Emmanuel and his decision to not fire upon the fascist as a demonstration of weakness. Neville Chamberlain-esque appeasement. But context is everything. The king probably thought he was de-escalated in the situation by not using force. He probably thought that he could defuse this somehow, and he was not actually helping a brutal authoritarian dictator come to power. This is not to say that the march on Rome was peaceful, mind you. Some fascists did attempt to invade the offices of members of parliament. Uh, There was fighting in the streets, but it was less violent than a full-on militarized response, with the possibility of some defections by the Italian military. Still, one of the great what-ifs of the 20th century is what would have happened had King Victor Emmanuel decided to strangle fascism in its cradle. But he didn't do that. He bowed to the will of the angry armed mob, and he picked up a telephone. Miles away in Milan, another telephone rang, and Mussolini answered. King Victor Emmanuel offered him the prime ministership of a coalition government that included the fascists and the Catholics and basically everyone except the socialists and communists. Mussolini accepted, and the black shirts marched into Rome. A few days later, he met with the king as prime minister. It's important to note that when the fascists came to power, they were not a majority. They were not even the most popular political party in Italy. 
The socialists were. The only thing that allowed them to take over Italy's government was by forming a coalition with conservative liberals and Catholics. Conservative liberal sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not. See last episode. A lot of these more conservative elements saw Mussolini and the black shirts as a threat, certainly, but less of a threat than the socialists and communists were. And again, that first coalition government that Mussolini headed, it had absolutely everyone in it, except the socialists and the communists. It's also totally possible that many of the conservative liberals, the Catholics, etc., thought that they could control or manipulate Mussolini. Maybe they thought that this flamboyant failed romance novelist would just go along with whatever they wanted to do. Maybe he'd just been sound and fury. Maybe this demagogue who vainly called himself a professor, who saw himself as a platonic philosopher king, or a Nietzschean ubermensch, this guy who inspired an informal army of angry men who forcefully marched through Italy, well, maybe now that he had power, maybe it would change him. Maybe he'd become a normal politician once he got into office. Maybe that would assuage or satisfy the army of angry men in black shirts who Victor Emmanuel had just let march into Rome. That's not what happened, of course. Instead, fascist elements were brought inside the government. And, during the next few years, those elements would dismantle and rework the pre-existing systems in Italy. And after Mussolini became prime minister, the various vestiges of the liberal government that preceded him would, piece by piece by piece, disappear. Italy had taken its first steps toward dictatorship and, eventually, disaster. This show is ad-free. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to sign up for a monthly donation. That would be amazing and excellent of you. Also, give us ratings and reviews on iTunes. Give us stars, words, etc. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. The show is on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.